Tell me when you're ready to go. So we've been ready to go. I've been recording for like the last ten minutes. Oh, okay. Recording? Yeah, recording. This is Mom's Basement Podcast episode 56. Um, Alex Swingle's Desperate Kickstarter Attempt Edition. <laughs> yeah, we're, we get to ask the most important question. Why isn't the Lingerie Football League more popular? It seems pretty cool. Because it's a really stupid idea. <laughs> I think it'd be a cool idea if people actually got hurt while playing it. They don't? How do you play football in lingerie and not end up really fucking hurt? See, I don't know, but they somehow they don't. So that kind of ruins it, I think. <laughs> because... People play football in clothing that's actually designed to be protective and still end up getting fucked up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, you, that's because they go 100%. That's why there's more injuries. If they had less armor, they would not go 100% and there'd be less injuries. So that, is this I like, think they should put on full armor and go 100%. Is this like professional wrestling where it's basically scripted? How dare you, sir? <laughs> Moving on. Anyways. Okay, so in tonight's episode, this week's episode, we're going to talk about Epistolary Richards' game, Antarctica, and uh, then we are going to talk about Alex Swingle's new Indiegogo project. Yeah. We'll send it to them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's, let's get, well, do we have any announcements, anything we want to talk about at the top here? Well, yes, I have an Indiegogo project. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, w- I was just kidding there. Uh, pretty much uh, besides uh, wanting to hardcore watch me some uh, season finale of Due South. I mean, I'm at least 10 years behind from everyone else, but, you know, go Ram. I must watch it. Mm-hmm. Go Ram. Been pretty good. Uh, no, nothing really. I have something to ask our zero listeners. How would you feel about a mom's basement video cast using the Hangouts on air function of Google Plus? Is this something you'd actually, would you sit down and watch our ugly fucking faces? Uh, Or would you rather just listen to audio? And also if we did say do, Google Hangouts on air, you know, once a week, Saturday evenings, it would probably be Saturday nights, Eastern Standard, around 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Would you come? Would you watch us live? Would you participate? Is this something that seems cool to you? Uh, if not, then fuck it. We probably won't do it if no one's interested, but it's something we're considering doing. So if you want to give us feedback... Give us some fucking feedback. I mean, I know it'll be very difficult considering, like, Saturday Night Live is, like, three hours away from that time zone, you know, time period. So I can see how it can be very difficult to get people to want to, to come see us. Mm. But that's why we need to know. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we can compete with Saturday Night Live. Although, honestly, does anyone still watch Saturday Night Live? I think the I last time I saw an episode of Saturday Night Live, it was... The 90s. They still had someone doing a Janet Reno impression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <So>. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. <laughs> Enough derailment from me. <laughs> Go ahead. So, Antarctica. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, this is a game by Epistolary Richard, or at least that's what he's calling himself. It's a hack of Archipelago 2, or at least it uses some of the rules from Archipelago 2. And it is set in a steampunk version of Antarctica. With a K. With a K, yes. That's what makes it steampunk. Hmm. You play a group of Victorian-era explorers who are also have... <laughs> who use alchemy as magic and who exist in a society with steampunk technology. And anyway, you've gone to Antarctica on a mission from the queen herself, and then you get stranded somehow. Your expedition is derailed and largely destroyed, and you're walking alone in Antarctica and crazy magical mystical, creepy things happen, maybe, if the game works. Now, does someone else want to offer a better synopsis than that? That's a pretty good synopsis. Yeah, I mean, it's not choice, but it explains quite a bit. <laughs> and there's what, there's, um, there's four characters, types, or whatever. And then there's an adversary who basically uh, doesn't create challenges, but, well, it creates challenges at certain times during the game. Right. He's, he's not primarily responsible for creating challenges. It's not a GM role, a strict yeah. GM role. But he's responsible for creating a certain amount of the atmosphere and for leading things towards a final confrontation, in which case he sort of evolves into the GM role for that final confrontation. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, you have scenes that are framed by each of, by the players of each of the individual characters. Right. Right. And they take the resolution cards from Archipelago 2 and also some of the ritual phrases from Archipelago 2 and use them to frame play and frame, as I said, resolution. Mm. Okay. Anything else people need need to know about this game? Um, Jump into it. I mean, it's like, free for me. Yeah, it's free for me. It's very free for me. So. Right. Where do you want to start with this? All right. Maybe we should start out with um, character <laughs> creation there. Yeah. There isn't any. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more it's like more... character selection. I was just going to say that. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So there are How did four we feel? character roles, right? Uh-huh. Yep. You've got the champion... Champion. Presumably is like a uh, kind of a hero of the Empire. And he, uh, yeah, he's basically a hero type dude. But he doesn't, and, what he doesn't want people to know is that the powers that he had that he used to establish his fame 
have disappeared. Right. And now he's just using trickery to make people think that he's still the man he once was. Uh, he's basically a fraud. Right. A secret fraud, as it secret says fraud. On, the, uh, on the PDF. And then you have uh, the mage, who is basically what he sounds like. He's a alchemical wizard. And um, he, the mage's stick is that he has a, uh, he's the heir of some, uh, I think he's the heir of, like, one of the first, uh, of the alchemical people, like the, what do they call them, ferromancers? Yes. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. But and then we have... He's pretty much uh, the equivalent of, like, a sociopath, though, because he does not care for <laughs> feelings and as long as it, he can get what he wants. Yeah. And then so, we yeah, have sorry. the agent. Um, the agent is, again, basically what it sounds like. It's an agent of the, the Empire or the Queen. And, um... Basically... <laughs> basically... Well, the agent's thing is that they have a secret love affair going on with uh, someone else in the group. For a secret infatuation, anyway, maybe. Now, yeah. they're, the agent has openly hooked up with the mage, mm. right? Yeah. But they're secretly infatuated with the savage. Yeah, they got a kind of a fair deal going on. A and you taboo have the... relationship. <laughs> yeah, taboo. Indeed. Then you have the the savage who is basically. I'm gonna get in trouble for saying what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I won't say that. I'll say uh, basically no, the savage. Yeah, okay. It's basically what it sounds like. It's a slave. Um, the dude is basically uh. He's one of the conquests of this empire. Mm. This British Empire, um, and he, what's his stick? Let me see. I'm gonna have to be cutting out a lot of stuff today. Yeah. Well, his thing is kind of like he might want to take back some of his former glory. The story. Yeah. He has a secret agenda, basically, towards and his. Serfdom or slavedom or whatever. Right. Well, and he may be holding a grudge against the empire for good reason, you know. Yeah. And those are the four characters, and you have the adversary. Um, not much to right. say about the adversary. Yeah, because we already got into it. The adversary is whatever dark forest exists in Antarctica that the players are going to come up against. Mm-hmm. Whether it's something, you know, psychological, it could be something within themselves, it could be some kind of dark magic, it could be the tribes of Antarctica, it could be some kind of, you know, magical monster or something. It could be any number of different things, but it's whatever they encounter in Antarctica that they ultimately have to um, triumph over, that they ultimately find themselves in conflict with. So... At the beginning of the game, everyone is going to choose one of those roles. Yep. Now, this is a game that is strictly made to be played with five players, so we had to improvise in order to make it work for three players. 
with Alex and Rudy each taking two of the character roles, and I took adversary. But anyway, so at the beginning of the game, you're going to pick one of those roles. Everyone picks one, and then beyond that, there's a little bit of customization that takes place. You make a few decisions. You pick a name for your character, and your character sheet has a couple of questions that you answer at the beginning of the game. But it's pretty much pick your character role and then jump right into the game. The only thing is you do have to pick, um, ter- what are they called, terrible secrets for each of your characters? Yes, right. Terrible you can do secrets. that. Terrible. Well, you can do that uh, either secretly or you can do it out in the open. Right. So we chose, since uh, we were playing two characters each, we chose to do it out in the open. And that's, and I do like the character creation selection process here. Uh, What I really like about it is it's loaded with so much potential for conflict with the other players. Right. Because several of the roles are established immediately with relationships with other roles, with other player characters. Like, we know right away that the mage has hooked up with the agent and is having an affair with her and was using that affair in our, and, and used the influence gained through that affair in order to join the expedition. And we know right away that the agent is secretly interested in the savage and that the savage is also secretly interested in the agent. And we know that the champion is trying to hide his true identity from the rest of the group. So there's all of these different... Um, so just from the rules alone, there are all of these different possibilities for subterfuge and, uh, you know, moments of emotional conflict, strategic conflict between the players. And when you add the terrible secrets on top of that, which also... Uh, which must be things that could potentially undermine the expedition, potentially get your character in deep shit, basically. You have another level of conflict between the players, or potential conflict between the players, potential social conflict. So right off the bat, you have a very good um, foundation for interaction between the different players. And I think that was something that was very strong going in. Yeah. Now, how did you guys feel about the character selection creation process? Rudy, you should go first. Okay. Well, I did like the characters, um, especially the ones I played. I thought were pretty fun and gave me tons of ideas to throw out. Um, I guess some of the, some of the parts of character creation you actually do during the game. Like, uh, well, some of the things on your sheet, on your character sheet, you actually fill out during the game. Yes. Which, uh, I think is, it might be good and bad, because, um, on one hand, it kind of lets you roll with what's going on in play, and, uh, it gives you, you know, sort of might guide you towards, guide your play a little bit. But, uh, I, I didn't really get into it too terribly much because I I would rather have that stuff going into the game I think mm. just because a lot of it 
didn't really get incorporated into the narrative that we built just simply because it only happened that, you know, it only happened that it came up like a few times or something. So if we could choose it, especially the, uh, the second part of the when you encounter this or that, like, uh, for my, my character, or one of my characters, the agent, her uh, thing was when you encounter a follower of the adversary, your first loyalty is to, and then you select one, you select the other heroes, your country, yourself, or your lover. Um, that was one that I think that was kind of easy to do in play. But right. some of the other ones, like, uh, like the serve, or the, not the servant, the savages, uh, his, his thing says your utmost priority is to free your people, restore your position, gain personal vengeance, destroy the empire. Those seem like things that you'd want to kind of have behind your character when you go into the game. Just so you can, um, so you can plan to get them in there a little bit more. Because I know, like, my, the one I chose was restore my position, which I guess he was a prince or something like that in the, before he was captured. But that didn't really get to come up much in play. Um, and it didn't, uh, because it, I don't, it just didn't, uh, I didn't really, I wasn't really planning for it. So I couldn't really put anything, you know, start things moving early in the game. Right. You know, that, that might have helped put that in there a little bit more. Yeah, I agree that I, I kind of like the idea of having facets of your character that turn on as play moves forward. Mm. Having things that are triggered by things that happen in play. So that there's a sense of your character evolving. In fact, he calls it, I believe, an advancement in the game. However, in the game text, however... Um, I agree that some of them are not, some of them are, as you say, things that you would like to have at the beginning. There are some examples, though, where they, the moment that they lock in fits pretty well. Like, um, the agent, when the agent first encounters Azores, they get to decide, they have some kind of backup plan that they, that they have. In order to um, let me let me see if I can find it in the text here. Oh, you mean the uh, champion? No, it's the agent. No, the champion is the when you encounter. Oh, I meant okay. Actually, for the agent, it when you encounter a follower of the adversary, you have and here and it's a list of different possible like backup plans. A signal to call in an airstrike. The location of a supply drop, a treaty, a bargaining, a bargaining chip, or something else. It's got other. You can write it in. But the idea that that would also be the moment in the story when you would actually need one of those things. You know, when you first come face to face with the adversary or with someone working for the adversary, and you first realize what you're really up against. That's the moment when you would want to call in an airstrike. Or you would want to know the location of a supply drop, or you can get some, some, you know, um, some kind of support. Mm-hmm. Or it would be the moment when you would offer the adversary a treaty, you know, if that's what you are secretly there for. Mm-hmm. So I think 
having some of these things that uh, that lock in that come into play later in the game and that aren't spelled out on your character sheet before then aren't selected at the beginning of the game adds a sense like a dynamic sense to the game the idea that things are evolving and changing as you play it as opposed to the game being scripted in advance and then moving through the steps right so i think that's cool but some of them as you said it might be good to know them earlier in the game yeah that actually uh, helps me um ha- being able to have a understanding on certain um, encounters of like, you know, what would be my go-to thing would also have been useful because um, it would also help in terms of um, structuring what I would want to do, uh, you know, with, with that kind of character. Like if I wanted him to be like a ruthless asshole, I would want to uh, select something in accordance. So that way, whenever that encounter happened, I would sort of, you know, tip my uh, hand to the other players of what I'm probably going to do, and now give some some rich stories when it's probably something I personally don't want to do. So that way, there can be that conflict, like with the actual player playing those characters instead of mm. um, basically having full control. Because I, I I I would really like that kind of um, scenario to happen because. The way this game kind of functions in actual play, it seems that it would probably do a lot better if people were trying to uh, play a, 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 a mixture of one-upsmanship as well as uh, cause trouble for each other. Okay. Mm-hmm. And having some of those answers in advance, especially for like, I will absolutely, you know, blah, blah, and blah, that would probably help. Yeah, yeah, it- could potentially. Oh, it also does create the sense of um, with the ones that appear mid-game or presumably appear around mid-game. It creates a sense of maybe um, your character's motivations solidifying. Because usually, each of the mid-game ones has two things. One's kind of a practical thing, like here's an ability that your character gained, like the airstrike thing. Or here's something that has a, you know, a real material aspect to it. Here's something that you can use to change what's happening in the plot. And then the second one is usually some, something about your character's motivation is revealed. And I like the fact that your motivation can potentially become more complex through play, that mid-game you might finally figure out, oh, this is what my character is all about. You know, this is what he's after. But I do agree with you that maybe you might, in some instances, want that earlier, and I'm not exactly sure why those motivational aspects are tied to something... um, Something so practical happening, or, or something specific happening in the storyline. Like, I can see very clearly why encountering the follower of the adversary would make you want to think about whether or not you have a signal to call on the airstrike. Or why, uh, let me look at some of the other ones here, why uh, encountering a member of the tribe of Antarctica and maybe coming into conflict with them might let the cause the maze to reveal what secret power their family heirloom has. You know, things like that 
make sense. But to have some kind of change in your character's motivation or to have some kind of reveal of your character's motivation tied to something like that seems a little arbitrary. And maybe if it was tied to something else or maybe if it was something that at a certain point in the game you decide on your motivation. Maybe if there was a way to determine the midpoint of the game or just, you know, after your character undergoes a certain moment, you know, a certain kind of emotional whatever, then they right. get to select the, their, their motivational feature, their motivational attribute. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about the character types and how they function a lot. Uh, another thing that you notice right away going into the game is the setting. And I personally think that this is just about the strongest point of the game. I think there are so many... This game contains so many cool little touches in such a small number of words. You have... <laughs> uh, first of all, just the idea of having a game set like in Shackleton's, <laughs> you know, it's like steampunk Shackleton. I just, I just <laughs> like that idea, you know, the idea of the doomed expedition, which we, which is almost a genre, really. You know, the people who are out on some isolated expedition and then things go terribly, terribly wrong. The idea of mixing that with steampunk and adding in alchemy and all this stuff about um, colonization and, and the colonial period and Victorian England and Sir Isaac Newton, like, practicing alchemical magic. And there's so many just cool little details in here. And there's so much to get you thinking about the game and thinking about wanting to play the game. There's such a strong impetus to play this game, I think, based on its setting. I don't know. How did you guys feel about the setting? Well, I also agree that the, the setting is its strongest point. Um, I mean, for, for me, I was kind of like, uh, you know, wishy-washy on it because, like, it's the concept of the landscape is nice. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely it's definitely more of the, of the fantastical nature because mm -hmm. if you've ever been to Antarctica, which we haven't, but at least we have... <laughs> Like, you know, people who have been there before that there's nobody there for a reason. And so a lot of the uh, a lot a lot of the stuff that we would just so happen to find would not be in Antarctica. Oh, yeah, certainly. That that's my that, that, that's that's what divorced me from it, because like I knew it was going for the fantastical nature, because in oh, reality, yeah. that wouldn't not, not, a lot of the stuff that we were going to do in the game wouldn't happen. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is a fantasy setting through and through. I mean, Antarctica is a wasteland. So unless the game was going to be about meeting penguins and dying of, of exposure, <laughs> <laughs> there had to be some... Although I would totally play that game. I'm not dissing the idea of a game where you go to Antarctica, meet some penguins, and then die of exposure. And they but, can add Cthulhu monsters. Ugh. Right. But that's totally <laughs> not this game. This is... <laughs> This is a steampunk game with elements of psychological horror and 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 once again Sir Isaac Newton using alchemy to cast spells and shit. I mean, this is a fantastical game through and through. 
And I think it's very upfront about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely like the setting a lot. Uh, three words. The Demon Napoleon. Oh, yes, right! <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's got some really vivid uh, details. You can really imagine the world and stuff. Makes it fairly easy to uh, get into it, get started, and get a character rolling. There's so many ideas you get just by reading the, you know, four paragraphs to the intro. But, yeah. Right. So, uh, now let's talk game mechanics here. And this, I think, is where the game starts to struggle a little bit. So much of what happens before the game starts moving, like, so much of what happens when you're thinking about playing the game and preparing to play the game is so cool and gets you so geared up to enjoy this game. And the mechanics are, the way I'm setting it up, I realize, makes it sound like I'm going to say, but then everything goes off a cliff and crashes and burns. And it's not that bad, but there is definitely a certain lack of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not coherence, but um, the mechanics do not, come together in a very cohesive way, I feel. I feel like, as I said before, the mechanics are basically a mix, a mix of ritual phrases that people can say in the game, plus scene structure mechanics, which are player-guided up until the point that the adversary steps in and kind of takes over the game during the final confrontation, plus... Um, the resolution cards from Archipelago 2, the yes but, yes and, no but cards that decide, uh, you know, when you get into conflict, whether it's resolved positively, negatively, and whether in the process of it being resolved positively and negatively, things, additional things go wrong or something strange and unexpected happens. And any of those components in and of itself, I guess, work okay. But I didn't feel like the mix of those components that exist in this game really does a lot to drive play forward. I feel like this game contains a lot of, of text that says the game should play like this. Playing the game should feel like this. This is what should happen in the game. But that the mechanics themselves don't do much driving. You know, there's a lot of reliance on the players to sit in the driver's seat and decide when they're going to turn, where they're going to go. Um, which is fine, except that if you have an instance where all of your players are not on the same page, the game doesn't offer many options to really help people. Well, not options. The game doesn't offer much direction to help people get on the same page. This is what the ritual phrases are supposed to do. They're supposed to offer you the chance to step in and say, no, it shouldn't, it's not working. Well, not no, it's not working, but they should offer the chance for players to step in and guide the game in the direction that they want it to play, to move in. And it should off, these should be consensus building phrases, you know, and I, I don't know, what are, what are some examples? Things like, you know, do it differently, or um, what are some of the other ones? Stay with it. Yeah, stay, stay with, with it. it. Things like that. But 
my feeling is that when you have three players who are not on remotely the same page, which I kind of felt what was happening with us, and it's something I think can easily happen when the game is so low prep, when you really aren't talking yeah. before the game about this is the kind of game we want to have, to rely on those ritual phrases to guide play I don't know. I, it, it didn't seem to work quite right for me. It was more like it was more like a game of tug of war than anything else that eventually just turned into resignation. <laughs> you know, because when the goals are unarticulated, having mechanics that are primarily corrective as opposed to inspirational, I think is is problematic because. And that's really what the mechanics are. They're corrective. They're like, oh, I feel like the game is starting to go off track. Or I would like to see the game going differently. Let me say this ritual phrase to pull it in that direction. And I feel like that doesn't really... It says, no, you're kind of going the wrong way. But it, what it doesn't say is, let's go this way. And it also doesn't provide much in the way of... Uh, well, inspiration is once again the word. I talk a lot about inspirational mechanics in this podcast, but I think it's I, I say it because I feel like it's an important thing. The idea that the mechanics in play should help you generate ideas. It should do more than just help you to guide the game. It should encourage you to generate ideas, and it should help you out of tight spots when players can't necessarily think of anything. And I don't feel like the mechanics in this game really do that. Now, I could be wrong, and people free to disagree with me. I'm what did you guys free say? to agree with you. Yeah, I'd, I'd pretty much agree, too, about the uh, ritual phrases. Well, a lot of them, uh, as you said, don't really... They suggest that something might be wrong, but they don't really suggest any alternative. Like, when you say do it differently, it's like, how 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 you know how do I do that? You know, and I know maybe you're supposed to stop and talk about it when, uh, you know, when whenever you use one of these phrases. But that disrupts the flow of play. Yeah, that. Um, the only one that I saw really that really I think helped move the narrative was this might not be so easy or that might not be so easy. Right. Because that that one when it came up always led to basically inspiration play you know always inspired the scene to go somewhere and it did that by forcing players to draw one of the cards right um so i guess maybe if there were more mechanics like that or me or more phrases like that and i realize there's the i'd like to throw something in mm -hmm. but that it doesn't always feel right to necessarily use this right you know because it, it doesn't necessarily feel right to maybe maybe you feel like you're stealing the scene a little bit away from the the player or you know it it's not always something you're not always sure what to throw in really right and also because the um, game is so loose in terms of who has narrative authority at any given moment that is almost unnecessary because you right. always kind of feel like you could step in and throw something in if you really wanted to. And while you understand that whoever's seen it is, 
has uh, the power to sculpt that scene and to guide that scene, there's never the sense that you couldn't just step in and throw something in if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. So that and that ritual phrase almost never got used because we the way we were playing it was just you kind of stepped in and you you added something when you felt it needed to be added. And I don't feel like the game really discourages you from doing that. In fact, it seems to encourage you to do that as long as it doesn't escalate into scene stealing, as you said, Rudy. Yeah, that that was uh, when I was reading this game and we were actually playing it. It definitely felt there was half of the book was missing in terms of like how to actually use the uh, functions that were given in the game. Because when people, when you know, when those phrases were used, it's like, you know, stay with it, you know, that might not be so easy. Um, a lot of it was, you know, or, you know, change it, things like that. It was, you know, like you, like you guys were saying, it was saying that something was wrong with what you were doing. Or, you know, that the person who was saying it, they think that you could do something else to improve it. But they didn't tell you how you should try and help improve it. As in, should you say, change it and then like throw out, you know, think robots, change it with that, or just, or do you just say change it and then wait for them to like have their head explode on like what should they actually change of what they just said? And should right. I change the last sentence I just said, or should I change the entire thing I just said? Right, and and that's really what is at the heart of this problem, I think, is that the game doesn't offer ideas. But yeah, but that's why that's why uh, that's why I was getting at when I said like there's right. probably half a book missing where the person has, like, their own theory, or, like, they have their own little book side, like, you know, ideas of how these kind of games should work, but was they did not include that. Right. And, and now that I think of it, and I'm glad Rudy kind of mentioned something to lead up to this, but the resolution cards themselves from Archipelago 2 actually did work pretty well. Mm-hmm. The yes, but, yes, and, no, but, no, and cards actually did work really well in that whenever we stopped to resolve and drew those drew the cards it really helped to give us to at least take us that one step forward towards an idea you know if you see yes but something unexpected happens you think oh well what was that something unexpected and it gets you thinking and then maybe you come up with something you suggest something and I think those were a lot more effective at generating cool ideas for the narrative than the ritual phrases were. That said, Richard mentions that he has skewed those cards towards success. And he said that he, he did that because he wants this game to stay focused on the characters, and he basically doesn't want this to be a meat grinder where you just feed the characters in and they die, and you feed the characters in and they die. But right now, I feel like it's skewed too strongly towards success because we almost never got a no. And I also right. don't think that a no necessarily means like character death or something terrible and impossible to overcome. But I would have liked to see more situations and negatively, particularly in a way that escalated the scenario. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You guys have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, there was a um, there was at least an issue with me when it came to the uh, the pacing of the back and forth when it came to trying to resolve things. 
it seemed like they were mainly ultimatums when you picked your answers. Mm-hmm. And um, because of the heavy handedness on those picks, it uh, skewed how players uh, responded because, you know, the, the other players are supposed to say how it went down versus the person who was supposed to draw. And so by getting that, like, you know, yes, it happened no matter what. And then followed by but, and then you have to disclaim, uh, you know, what, you know, what could possibly have happened as well. It uh, it didn't give a lot of uh, a lot of breathing room for other possibilities. Right. And, right. and so because of that, it's. that That's why I said it, it made it to where it was this. This is the decision. There is no other kind of way you could maybe weasel something in there. And that would be a little interesting to do that kind of stuff um, to, to provide some flexibility. But, you know, like at least let people know, say, hey, here's some flexibility. But, you know, please don't go overboard. You know, that kind of thing. Do it to allow that kind of uh, freedom in this kind of freeform game would probably be a lot better for it to, to happen. Really? Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. Um you know, not the idea of, you know, not outright veto, but, you know, here, curve it towards this, you know. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, what about the mapping component here? The idea that you're drawing a map of Antarctica as we play. This is something we didn't talk about much. But you're encouraged to basically make a crude map and plot the progress of your expedition and add landmarks and stuff to the map as you play. How did you guys feel about that? Yeah. Rudy? <laughs> yeah, I, I could take it or leave it because I think um, maybe it was because we only had, you know, two players playing the, the characters in the group. Mm-hmm. But uh, it didn't really seem like it added too much. I could see where it would add something to a game, you know, all five people. If every you know, five minutes, somebody's reaching on the map and saying, okay, we're here, we're going this way. Right. And it could help kind of unfold the story a little bit. But in our game, anyway, it didn't really seem to really matter that much. Yeah, that was my feeling, too. That conceptually, this is really cool, because it makes sense. A game that's about an expedition to uncharted territory should have a map. Right. But I wish there were more mechanics pointing us back to the map. I wish the map really contributed something to the play. I wish it was more than just um, just a tchotchke or a uh, a little like uh, you know a little like like window dressing basically. I wish it was more than just something that was used to build atmosphere. I wish it had relevant real relevance to how the game was played. Yeah, because like the only time the the map really became involved was when I purposely did something outrageous and had one of my characters be on like the across the uh, the map where everyone was supposed to be beached in order to uh, throw in like some some wackadoos because other than that there really wasn't much going on with the map itself right but I must I must insist that putting dinosaurs in Antarctica is just a great idea even though they're <laughs> yeah. cold blood exactly <laughs> Okay, so, um, is there anything else that we didn't talk about, or any other facets of this game that we didn't really explore? I guess, what did you think about the adversary role? Oh, 
Oh yeah, I did play that, didn't I? I, I, <laughs> I think that says a lot, right there. <laughs> I think that I really wished that I had a clearer idea of what I was doing when I was playing the adversary role. Ideally, as the adversary, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to spend the first part of the game kind of listening to the players and trying to figure out what kind of story they want. And then as the game moves along and as you enter the second half and eventually the final confrontation, you're supposed to be guiding it towards a climax. And a climax that really delivers on the player's stories. The problem is, though, while I was sitting there listening, I wasn't hearing much indication from the players about where they wanted this thing to be going. Yeah, that's right. You were difficult. And I feel like (laughs) this is a problem that could come up a lot, especially when you have multiple players going for multiple different tones. And since the ritual phrases don't really do too much to guarantee or to really lead the game towards a single tone and a single focus, as the adversary, I felt like I spent the first half of the game kind of beached, kind of just groping around, looking for ways that I could be useful and contribute to the game. And then the second half of the game, desperately trying to take what I was given and paste it together into something resembling a coherent climax. Yes, William, you were like a whale. Gigantic (laughs) influence, but helplessly in danger. (laughs) And beached. (laughs) Yes, that's what I was going for. Flopping around, (laughs) opening my mouth. I mean, big presence in the game, but... I can't really do anything. <laughs> Trying to take in water that wasn't there. I mean, it, it, it's not a terrible thing, and I'm glad you mentioned the adversary role, because I like the idea of an evolving GM role. The idea of a GM, of a um, what's the, asymmetrical GM. A GM who has less influence on the setup of the game, and more influence on the on the climax of the game. And I thought um conceptually that's really cool to allow the players to guide the game in the early steps of the game and to try to build and construct the game that they want to play and then to have the GM and it isn't a complete GM role, I understand that, but to have something resembling a GM step in at the end to deliver on everything that the players have set up. I think that could be really cool, but I feel like the way this game is structured didn't really make it possible for that to work as effortlessly and as smoothly as it could have and should have. So that's my thought on the adversary. Also, I spent most of the game like trying to figure out, well, what the fuck am I? What kind of adversary am I? And I wasn't getting the kind of cues from the players that I would have liked. Not that you guys failed as players, just that the game didn't do much to corral you and the tricks into something that I could use. Okay, so um, anything else you want to talk about here? Any other parts of the game you feel like we didn't touch upon? No, I mean that that's pretty much like my final thought there on the on the game. That the setting is really really nice. I I want. Maybe even more on the setting. Yes. I mean, it's one of the rare circumstances where 
I want you to go World of Darkness on me and give me just a little bit more detail. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> and then the other thing is present the other half of the game that's trying to actually teach you how to play it in their way. Because right now there's um, suggestions, but there's not actual uh, teaching on what you want me to do in that game. And because of that, it may, it'll make it difficult for inexperienced players. And we're not that inexperienced with this kind of stuff. But the whole point is we want to play this as if we are that. So that way it can really be understood that this game as a whole is like, you know, is like an expert game where you're already supposed to have all these improv teachings and stuff and that you really need to go back to the basics and tell people how to actually play this. That that's how I feel about it. Okay. Final thought on Antarctica, Rudy. Um, well, I think basically the same as Alex. You should have a little bit more structure to the manual that shows, you know, that gives more ideas, you know, about how to how scenes should be framed. You know, gives some examples. I know in the back there is a, a you know a little bullet list of example scenes, but there's no real um content content about you know how to use that yeah so yeah i mean just more examples and like he said uh the setting it would be cool to know more about the setting because it is an awesome setting right and right. uh yeah you know for my final thought i i used to have a professor in college who taught a well, he, he would teach a lot of different literature classes. And what he would always say is good fiction shows rather than tells. Well, I think a good game, a good role-playing game has mechanics that inspire rather than suggest, that guide rather than tell. And I, I think that's the, the problem here is you have a lot of text saying a good game should look like this. You should be on the lookout for this. You should try to do this. And not much in the way of mechanics actually guiding you towards those outcomes when you sit down to play the game. Right. And, you know, that's something that's been problematic with games since the beginning. I'm thinking of the Dungeon Master Guide and how much of that is just play advice. And I think we need to move away from a play advice mode of thinking about how games should be written and more towards a play inspiration mode of how games should be written and how mechanics should be designed. And I'm not talking about pulling players through the game by the nose, because that's the opposite of that. I'm talking about mechanics that really make you want... That, no, not, not that make you want, but that make you feel like you can play the game and you know what to do next. Not because they're telling you what you have to do next, but because they're generating constant ideas that move you in a direction. That, that, you, know, that you can feel the wind at your back pushing you forward, as opposed to this kind of, um, kind of, um, wandering through the rules, this kind of looking, looking in the book for signposts and direction. And I feel like, and I'm not a big fan of ritual 
phrases, and I feel like it's for that exactly that reason. That ritual phrases are signs that you look at when you're lost. And the point of the of good game design should be preventing players from getting lost, making players feel like the journey is effortless, not like there are more not offering players more signs to look at when they do get lost. So that's my final thought. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> now, Alex, you you have gone and done it. We've been talking. Rudy and I sit down and say, oh, well, someday we should start a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo and we should try to get our games published. We should do these things. And then, and then I, I go down and I sit in my room and turn the lights off and think about hurting myself. And Rudy lies on his floor and friction masturbates to thoughts of women digging holes and nothing gets done. Yeah. You, sir, you you are on your way to getting something done. Do you want to tell us about this? Uh, yes, I wanted to uh, to have a. I, I had a game made, and um, you know I wrote it up, did all the uh, the effort there, and I want other people to experience it and to create this sort of. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say scene, but pretty much the kind of platform, the location for all the. Uh, the cool cats to uh, play this with, and um, so that is the inspiration behind the um, the Indiegogo project. And the name of the game is "Will Send It to Them." Now, this is an homage uh, to a previous episode in which uh, Rudy talks about a flash game he wanted to make, where you send um, aid and stuff to uh, underprivileged people. And then he said, "I'll call. I'll call it. We'll send it to him." And so, going off the uh, the, the joke that he made, I decided to use that title uh, to uh, reference what you are actually doing in the game. Mm-hmm. And what are you actually doing in the game? I feel like you've been circumnavigating, like you've been talking around what the game is really about. Well, I wanted to give the first example of it. Then I'm actually going to talk about it because okay. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's usually I prefer to actually say what I wanted to do with it, and then after that's been said sure. and done, as in now, I'll actually tell you what it is. Because sure. if the first thing doesn't interest you, the second thing's probably not going to interest you. Or maybe it's the other way around. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> but anyways, what it is is the uh, the concept is I wanted to make a, a game that um, a, a, at least a method, like a resolution system that could be done outside of the game as well as inside the game depending on um like what's going on like in in the game itself for example here there's a lot of um there's a lot of scenarios like maybe like in D D or something like that where the thief wants to write down a note that like says oh i i stole that i tried to steal this much gold from blah 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 and i'll send that to the gm you know secretly in order to do this so you know moments like that this Thing can work pretty well for people but basically the uh, the concept is i like to say basically too i said it um but uh the concept of it is it is a give and take like you know back and forth of trying to negotiate with somebody and using um they're using weaknesses that could uh could claim their heart and allow you to get what you need 
But the game is played using postcards, right? The main thing I wanted to use it for was to play with postcards. It could be used with anything you want, but it is perfect for, you know, actually sending it to other people via the, the you know, the postal service because it's not, uh, it doesn't have to be instantaneous and it takes effort to write down what you really want people to do, like, like what your thoughts are on the matter and trying to actually convince somebody to do something. And I really wanted it to be written form because there's a different level of thinking when it comes to writing than it is to speaking. And mm. usually, um, what I, I don't know about you, Will, because I know you like to write. I like to write sometimes, too. That it tends to become more uh, personal and a reflection of that person's ego when reading and writing what's being, uh, what's being read. Yeah. And so there, there's more passion behind it, and there's more of, um, more of a vision of what's really happening. Meanwhile, when you're speaking to somebody, you can hear the tone, like the, the actual, like what they're trying to get at. So when you hear somebody speak it, you're more likely to agree with them or disagree with them just by their tone of voice than right. the actual substance that they're giving. And so when you have it written in a written form, you get the you get your own reflection in the mirror of what you think this really means, as well as like your own like or dislike on what the uh, content is. And so it's much more passionate way of playing than the game. And I thought that was what made it so special. Of why it would be a great idea to have it be a postcard, or you know something like that. And what this what the project is actually funding though is a set of custom postcards, right, for playing this game. Yeah, I wanted to do a set of uh, postcards and um, also use that um, to uh, give people a PDF template uh, so that way they can make their own, you know, like maybe go to like a, uh, a online postcard store or maybe something uh, like that. Maybe even use just random postcards they found, like for cheap, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, do their own game for it. So that way, other people can do it. It's I don't, you know, I want this to be released to everybody eventually. But I, 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 I really want, I, I really need the the money in order to make that make it to where people can gather to a central location instead of being scattered. Because since it's writing, it's much more passionate, and so you're you're probably going to get a lot more people who will be interested in actually communicating with each other outside of the postcard game or even knowing they exist and so it would really be helpful to try and do that so i wanted to make the postcards because the postcard is is net is semi-necessary for the game itself so people would love to actually experience this thing and providing mm -hmm. postcards would be a good way of doing that um mm. and then the other thing would be to create the platform to create like a website where you can upload your pictures of like you know, like scanned letters that you actually have made or scanned postcards that you've made, and uh, people being able to read what was uh, what they experienced in the game. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the actual motivation to buy the game is these custom postcards and that kind of stuff. All the materials you get with it. Yes, because the actual system itself is uh, is simple enough, but creative enough to where it's it's actually a really good idea to use and to be able to use it like uh at least to have a a, a place to go 
and also materials to use that will be distinctive from everything else that mm -hmm. that that's pretty much the sales pitch if you will about why i i uh, i need your guys's help in order to do this really sure well you already got my help <laughs> you already managed to pry 10 bucks out of my claws <laughs> and i'll be donating shortly well, I mean, you, sir, you donate at least $5 willy-nilly. I mean, God King and, <laughs> and many other projects. I know you. Me? I haven't really, personally, I I donated to They Became Flash, mm -hmm. which I'm not going to get into that. They're, they're <laughs> I really loved that game concept. I really loved... Um, I loved it from when it was Arani's project, but I am disappointed with well, some of the things that I have heard about uh, the what's going on with production right now and why the game and what may have happened and what's preventing the game from actually materializing. And I know there were some personal things happen happening and that that delayed the game, but we're now nine months off of the date that was proposed as when people would get their books. And I, I don't know. It is not an ideal example of how a Kickstarter should happen. So, it was, so building off of that to not to gripe, um, <laughs> Alex, what kind of guarantees can you offer that if you should get funded, mm -hmm. if you should manage to raise that $500, what guarantees can you offer that that $500 is going to turn into custom postcards and a website in a timely manner? Well, number one, I know the exact cost. I know exactly what I need to do in order to format and frame the postcards. For, so for that part, that's the easiest thing to accomplish, and it's pretty much already done. The only thing that needs to be done is actual artwork being drawn, and I already know the scale that which it needs to be drawn upon. So it's just going to, you know, the guy or gal and saying, hey, I want something like this, and here you go, done and done, and put it up on the postcard, send the PDF over to a print shop, they'll print it, it's done. So that one will require the least amount of effort. It's not like formatting and asking, like, you know, a dozen different artists to get, you know, drawn copies and such like that, unless, of course, it goes beyond the $500, but that could be for later. Um, but the initial 500, it's pretty much less than less than a month turnaround of being able to get it in, send it, have them print it, and put them in their you know their bubble at mail envelopes for protection, or to actually send it because you know based on what perk you select. And yeah, like I I really see this taking no less than you know I mean no more than two or three months. If it takes more than that, that'd be ridiculous. But I've had many. I've had a lot of experience. I I mainly sell uh, things online, you know, like with eBay or you know websites like that. And you're, it's pretty much a demand. You get things shipped in a timely manner. So I have actual experience doing this, and it's one of the things that I'm really passionate about, which is not screwing over the people who buy stuff from you, because I don't like it when people do that to me. Right. So yeah, the only thing I can guarantee is my word, but the guarantee is pretty simple because I know exactly what I need to do. There's no like, 
well, maybe if I had some more cash, I'll ask somebody to do some more artwork for me, and I'll reformat the book mid-book completion after the Kickstarter was funded. And, yeah. So there you go. Okay. How does the uh, the website component of this work? I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but... All right, well, the, the website... The website itself will be uh, it'll be similar to kind of like a, like a like a forums. If you um, and the main reason why I I would like to have an actual website is because if you go to something like I can easily set up like a free forums website because like you know there's like at least a dozen different you know groups that actually do that kind of stuff. But right. the only problem is you can't host anything on there. You only can uh, yeah. host like typed words and that's it. And so in order for me to have, in order for me to put up pictures that are outside of like, you know, that, that don't use like photo bucket and, you know, shit like that, I have <laughs> to have an actual domain to host it all. And right. so in order to do that, I got to, you know, spend like between, I, I think like the, like the most reliable one that I found, which is the host that you guys use as well, is, which has been pretty reliable, at least for anyone mm-hmm. who's been trying to download the podcast. It's like around eight bucks a month. And so... You're talking about Bluehost? Bluehost, yes. Yeah, Bluehost is extremely reliable. It's We've used other web hosting services in the past, and I know this is going to sound like a commercial, but we have for other websites that we've, we've had and run, and uh, our experience with Bluehost and for hosting MiseryTourism.com has been so much better than our experience with any of our other previous um hosting providers mm-hmm. so yeah i would and like it's more affordable <laughs> <laughs> so i would like to uh use their services so that way we can upload or well, you know other people can upload the many different pictures that they'll have of like you know scanned copies of postcards or letters and such oh, yeah. so that way and the forums would also help by creating being able to create threads that are just for that game so that way people can go back and go like you know, hey, I want to see uh, some examples of like a steampunk, like you know, diplomatic, you know, mission or something like that, where they go talk to this person, blah blah blah. I want to see these people. I want to see their story of like how they were able to get past this obstacle. And mm. um, here's some pictures of what happened. Here's you know, blah blah blah. And because it's the rules can fit on a postcard, doesn't mean it has to be done via postcards. And so I can definitely see the opportunity of people using letters and actual photos being put into the letters because then it just it, it makes the experience that much uh, more um, enriched, if you say. Or play by email. Or play by email, that too. And so being able to do all that kind of stuff and have a place to store that all that um, all that info, all that um, all that creative work would be uh would be something I'm looking forward to the most, and it's primarily the only reason I even have it on uh, Indiegogo. I mean, making the postcards is one thing. I really want a place to house this whole thing, and that's the bulk of it. The postcard is there just because I want to give you guys something for at least some of the money besides just the PDF template. To have an actual construct of it will show you how easy it is for you to implement it on your own. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So I should actually probably say the rules because I talked about it, but I didn't actually say anything. Yeah. And I like to say this because I like to bash a lot of these games. 
they don't <laughs> usually tell you how to actually play the game. So I'm so gonna I'm gonna it. I'm gonna do a first for Indiegogo projects and actually tell you how this game works. So what it is is that you um you and another person uh so far there really isn't uh a means for like you know, like a three person group or you know multiple people at once and you know that may be something I can work on you know later but I wanted to give the initial idea because it's a it's a very easy back and forth with a lot of tension involved but right. it's two players um the first player is usually um you know they want something and they're trying to go to this person cuz they have some influence and then the second person involved it wants something from player one, you know, from the first person who's asking in exchange for uh, even having this conversation. And so there's a dilemma of, you know, give and take of uh, what people are going to do uh, if they're able to use, uh, you know, able to talk to each other and try and convince each other to do things. And uh, I gave examples of this, but, um, you know, on the how to play document that I put on there. But uh, I thought this one was really good to show you the how verbose it can be, like how much you can actually work with this. And uh, the one example that I used was um, a, a Weird West scenario. Like the theme was Weird West. And the, the what happened was, you know, they added Cthulhu to the mix. And so at the end of the session, an outlaw, which is player one, is entangled, you know, is, is in a mind uh, match with a Cthulhu-like monster who is trying to take over his mind telepathically. And so both people want something. Both people will lose something if it um, if they fail. And so that is an excellent way to, to, to show that it isn't just a simple matter of uh, I need uh, you know, gold from this uh, emissary to uh, fund my, uh, my ship campaign over to the West Indies. It's... Mm. It could be like an actual negotiation of I don't want to die, <laughs> so please don't do this to me. And so what you do is that there are six weaknesses, and I chose six because what ends up happening is and during the gameplay is eventually somebody will win, and usually they'll win on the second or the third uh, response because of how you're supposed to play it. Uh, that way, it's 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 quick enough to where you won't be having this long debate that happens for months on end. But it's long enough to where you get a good concept of why people are doing what they're doing, and also what modes of attack they're trying to use in order to uh, say, "Hey, do this for me, or else." Mm -hmm. And so the six weaknesses are created by you, by the you know, by both players. Uh, first person, you know. We determine who starts first, you know, just, you know, pick somebody to start first. And then you go one at a time saying something that will, that could affect both of you. And so, yeah. for example, the, the, for that Weird West um, encounter, you know, with the monster and everything, uh, the one, like the first player could use, um, could use desperation. Because the, the outlaw is desperate to stay alive. And to not have you know his mind taken over, and the monster may be desperate for a whole another reason. It could be that it must feed on uh, like you know psychic energies, you know you know the brain energy. It must feed in order to survive. So there's a certain like it could be like you know ravenous, like it has to feed, and so that's why this encounter even happened. 
So as you as you can tell right then there, just that example alone helps frame the scene and tries to uh, help uh, influence how people are going to speak to each other in order to try and get what you want. And so you go back and forth on picking your weaknesses, and then the actual gameplay starts when the first player, um, well, both people, they select three of those weaknesses and they keep those secrets. They, they keep those weaknesses secret from each other. If one player it correctly chooses your three weaknesses, you lose the game, and that other player gets what they want. And they have to choose all three. They have to choose all three at the same time, which is why I said usually it ends in uh, the second or third response because you can kind of cheat in this game, but mm-hmm. when you actually start to play it, you're probably not going to cheat because you'll get caught up in the emotions. But mm-hmm. the easiest way to win is to pick the first three then pick the last three, like, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then you'll know exactly what to pick. But usually, if you choose the first three you'll have a good percentage chance of guessing correctly the second time without having to do that. So you can guarantee third, but you can usually win twice. So let's say I picked three for my first try, and it turned out of one, two, and three, two was correct. Would you tell me you got one correct and the one you got correct was number two? Or what would you tell me? What you would do, and uh, what you would do is you would respond to each um, weakness. Not it doesn't have to be in order, but it has to be like you have to respond to each weakness. And if the person got it in character, and you have to respond, (laughs) I like that. (laughs) But um, what you have to do is you have to say positively, like you know, like as in you have to at least show that that affected you. So, um, and then if it's something that didn't apply to you, you have to show that this did nothing for me. I like, you know, you could be like insulted that the person even suggested it, or you could, uh, like, you know, scoff at them, say like, you know, you think that's like a, like a big deal to me, you know, and then you can explain why. And so by being able to do that, that'll also help with, with the, with the narrative as well, because I mean, if you actually seen like people write letters to each other, like some of like the examples, like you, know, it could be um, when Stalin and Churchill actually wrote, you know, yeah. they actually went back and <laughs> forth with each other. You could see there's a lot of thorns being, uh, po- you know, being stabbed right. into each right. other right. with the conversation of like, yes, you know, this pissed me off, and like, you know, no, I don't think that's a big deal at all. You know, I, I agree to help you with this, and so like it has actual like. It's it's a good uh, simulation of a real conversation, it, via via words, and I, I I think it really helps with uh with escalating trauma. So that way you get like a really cool um, and you get a really cool product at the end of it. You have actual nice. substance that just didn't fade away into thin air. Because usually when people are playing a role playing game, they're not recording it. Right. All you can all you can do is just say, yeah. remember that one time when me and my boys. Like, you know, right. in band camp, you know, we did this. <laughs> right, exactly. The most you can do is have a conversation afterwards or on some future date where you vaguely remember what the role-playing experience was like and you make it better or worse than it actually was through your memory. And this gives you concrete, this is how we did it and this is what happened. And those feelings I felt, I'm still feeling them now because it was the most concrete like, you know, you can't really deny right, because you can just read it again exactly yeah, how it was played. Yeah. Yeah. And um yeah, so 
I, I have a play uh, example uh, on 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 the project. I was here. wondering if you would mention this. Yeah, and it's slightly offensive, and that's only because like if you don't, yeah. if you're if if you're not aware of like the realities of that's going on <laughs> in that certain uh, location, it's not really a. I mean, one person responded telling me that it was like you know his you know Rudy when because I played it with him that he played a character that was uh, that was racist and offensive. That's racist. <laughs> towards uh, well, go. I'll go ahead. Well, right. Your play example is an African warlord played by Rudy negotiating with a. Uh, I, what was your character, Alex? It was I pretty much play... the equivalent of like a a person who had like UN ties, and so like they, mean, he, had he had his had, own. He had a fort or something. Yeah, he had a now, fort. Now was he like a? So was he like a UN peacekeeper or what was he? Was he like a diplomat? It would be the equivalent of like a, like a contractor, as in like he. Oh, with the I see. Right. And so, and he was in charge of uh, keeping supplies uh, in that group, and he is, was in desperate need of resupplying and the un didn't provide it for him so he had to go ask rudy's character the warlord right for some help and what played out i thought was pretty entertaining in choice but (laughs) i can also see why perhaps someone might perceive (laughs) it to be racist (laughs) but anyways if you can get past that like if you can just read it for what it really is it's a really good example of how of how great it could be because there's you because when you, you you agree and disagree, there's so much like there's actually a great deal of drama like attached to it. Like uh, let's see here, I, I can just give like uh, one of the retorts here that like Rudy gave. No, no, that I'll give one that I gave where he uh, he threatened uh, that he knew something more sinister than I did about um about my ties with the UN. Here's the exact uh, quote here. Um, what does surprise me is your use of tacking law into this matter, considering I have more influence the UN than you ever will. Just like these forsaken lands, it isn't what's right that will keep you alive, but what will prevent you from dying. For me, this is the UN. For you, assault rifles. <laughs> and I think that uh, you know that alone, that's a pretty powerful like you know statement to say like this is why I dis. Like this is why the, your your attack your weakness choice didn't work. You can clearly tell that that this is a big no. And what I also have there at the um, at the bottom, if you, to make it easier for people in case like they're having trouble like deciphering the message, was at the bottom when you make your three choices, you just put down that these were my three choices at the very bottom. And I did that on purpose so that way you have to read from top to bottom. I mean, you can just look at the bottom and see where it is because you'll be trained enough to know where to look there. But most people would want to read from top to bottom to see like how it unfolded. So I thought that would be really interesting. See, now that you explain the mechanics of the game to me, it seems remarkably straightforward. And it seems like you actually have a rule set um, that, is, that is more than just superficial. That is where you have maybe just one very small, very straightforward cluster of rules, but that they have a real, but that those rules are what create the game. It's not as if it's just free form with a couple of rules tacked on. You have created real clear win conditions that shape exactly how the play is, how play is structured and also how play is interpreted. 
So it seems to me that it's... But when I was reading the Indiegogo page, and when I was reading your conversation with User Clone on Story Game, it didn't come across clearly to me. I didn't really understand. It was very. It felt very murky, very blurry. I didn't understand exactly how the game would be played and exactly what made it a a game as opposed to simply some kind of vaguely structured freeform. Now that I can clearly conceptualize the game, I am more happy that I backed it than before. <laughs> but I I would like to see the text there really, really hone in on what it is that makes this game work and how it and how it is a game. You know, really hone in on the idea that you have these these um what are you calling them? The things that you choose at the beginning of the game. Oh they're called weaknesses because it is okay. it is the thing that uh will 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 break right. you down into actually doing it. Right. That you pick weaknesses at the beginning of the game. That you're exchanges are built around ferreting out these weaknesses and that your replies are built around letting people know whether or not the weaknesses have been discovered and that you ultimately win when you discover all three of someone's weaknesses. I think when you put it that way, it's a very straightforward, intuitive game and it is a game. And I think you just need to lay all that out, and then also, in addition to that, in addition to the fact that this is a game that you can play via correspondence, play via, via email, it will also come with a cool set of customized postcards to really get you, let you have the full experience. And I think if you really focus in on that, focus in on what makes the game work, what makes it unique, what you get physically, what you, the tangible thing you're getting for backing this. If you do a complete overhaul of what you're, you've written and focus it on that, you may discover that more people are willing to donate. Yeah, because it's only been like three days since I put this up, but the sure. initial responses were, they were definitely not the kind of responses I was looking for. Because if... The, what, I, what I was really looking for was not people to... Because it was pretty much bashed. Um, <laughs> as in, like, why does this exist? You know, that kind of shit. And right. what, I was, what I was really looking for is if people were actually interested in seeing it or hearing about it, ask for more. Not tell me, I don't like this at all. Right. Now tell me why I should even try to like it, even though I just made up my mind already. Well, I mean... You do. You are required to pitch it to them in an effective way, since you are asking for their money. Yeah. And I think people have the right to say, "Uh, I don't really understand what you're saying here. Like, I don't really get what you're saying, and I don't know why I should give you money because I don't understand you." I know. I just wasn't expecting that much negativity. I was expecting more, mm -hmm. like, uh, like you know, questioning, as in, like, what is this game fully about? And then I would, I would give them more info that I thought was necessary because. One of the main problems I've always had is is hype. Mm -hmm. Trying to wow the person into doing something versus just stating the facts of why right. it's good to like it. And right. this this has definitely helped me more in that pitch because the the initial um, you know launch and followed by the um, what happened in return has definitely uh, helped me. Um, 
at least focus on how to change that because you're you're right will i it's definitely it definitely needs to be fixed and uh i'm glad i had somebody backed it because you only have two days if uh, no one backs it that it just immediately goes you know disappears and so now that somebody has backed it i can work at least for this this you know for the whole next week on just refining it and you know adding new new things to it so that way people can know exactly what they're going for because i think this is a special thing and i just didn't voice it as such i voiced it as this is what i can do and i agree and aren't you glad that there was someone kind and charitable enough to back your project even when he had no idea what he was backing? <laughs> exactly. Well, I think that I think that was going to happen regardless considering how it happens all the fucking time. True. <laughs> but I still thank you nonetheless. Oh, I'm touched. So anyway, um, you have any final word on we'll send it to them? Um, I think it has legs. I really want this thing to last for years to come, and I I just want people to enjoy it because it's it's a it's a system that doesn't really it doesn't require the things that I dislike in most free form conversations, and usually free form conversations boil down to, but dude, really, I meant this. Shut the fuck up. And so this kind of thing makes it to where there's a there's a gentle back and forth and you'll be able to know exactly who actually wins without having to tell the other person shut the fuck up. And so I think this is perfect for those kind of situations and it could be used for multiple things and it'll be enjoyed. So like I mean irregardless I'll still try and make something after this even if it doesn't mm-hmm. work but I really would like it to give the I, I want to give it the respect it deserves. Right. And let me return to my McDonald's hamburger pitch pitch here. <laughs> Three bucks will get you the PDF version of the game. That that's three dollar menu items. And you don't get diabetes with the PDF. And a postcard. Oh. Right. And ten bucks will get you a full set of postcards to play the game. Ten bucks. Ten bucks. That's I even know what ten bucks will buy. Nothing. Nothing. Pornography. God damn it, Rui, you always ruin these things. It's free. <laughs> you don't need to pay for pornography. If you if you're paying for your pornography if you're paying ten bucks for your pornography, then you need to discover the internet and you need to get your pornography for free and use that ten dollars to back Alex Swingle's game. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what the hell Ten dollars is ten dollars is Chinese food. Come on, guys. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> but anyway, and also Alex only needs to reach five hundred bucks to fund this game. As Kickstarters and Indiegogo projects go, that's that's nothing. Yeah. And uh, Even, what what this money will actually be dealt with? Um, I I'll I will give you the full amount of like how this will be uh, worked out. Just to let you know how little that I'm actually taking for myself, I'm pretty much taking none of this. Um, I'll, uh, if if this 500 is raised, uh, first you know PayPal fees and um, and Indiegogo fees will apply, and I'll get roughly 450 of that back. You know, for for me to do the project, 140 of it is going to produce postcards, and it'll be to produce probably more postcards than what people are going to claim 
but it'll be used for for excess for extra stuff. How and many postcards is that going to produce? It'll produce 500 postcards. About okay. it's going to be roughly 17 cents a postcard once I get 500. If I order less than that, then it's it'll it'll become a little more a little too expensive. Right. And then um, after that, it'll cost about 100, maybe 125 for artwork, you know, for some decent artwork. Okay. And finally, mm-hmm. about about ninety to a hundred bucks because I, I I already priced out per month of how much it's going to be, but uh, it'll it'll be around a hundred bucks for um for registering the site and having it up for a full year. Okay, so you are keeping around eighty five dollars. Yep. For your effort. Yes. So and like you know in term in terms of what people usually keep with these kind mm-hmm. of things, I think I think that's pretty respectable. And plus, I'm also going to be using that for other things, not just uh, my own, like not not just for walking around money. I actually want to do other things with it, right. other projects. Okay. Nice. That seems pretty legitimate. Yeah. Pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. It's a lot less money than we will ultimately be asking when we try to kickstart a collection of misery tourism games. I'll pay you five dollars. Take the game. that's where we're at right now honestly yeah like we will pay you to like play our games maybe dude come on six page manual six dollars for a game of six page (laughs) (laughs) it's fun oh and i have to um I, i forgot to mention it's pretty international friendly because you know a postcard to send to anybody overseas is about a dollar five, and a postcard in the U.S. is fifty cents. So you're not going to have to pay an extra like seven dollars to you know to get to get it sent to you, you know, to get the the game sent. If you just want the single postcard just to see how it, it would work, um, you know, for you. Cool. Yeah. Yep. So without further yeah. ado. Yeah. So. Anything we anyone needs to say before we wrap up the podcast? Um. Hmm. I don't know you, Alex. The only thing I would really like is for people to, um, for me to be able to convey the uh, the magical awesomeness that this game has, and for people to to see it for what it is. And that's my final thought. I uh. I just want to read what a user clone wrote uh, on his number two in a funny voice. That's my final thought. Rudy's example character is a horrifyingly one-dimensional, childish, and incredibly racist and overall disgusting caricature of an African. I cannot fathom, sir, why you would advertise this as an actual play of your game. That's pretty much it. Did he actually use the word, sir? No, he didn't. You added I that. added that, yeah. <laughs> For a fact. Yep. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, user clone. You we know you know we love you. And what yeah, we, we do. I'm trying so hard not to press stop at any moment. Are we done now? <laughs> <laughs> totally done. Yeah, I'm done. I'm okay. Done. Life's over. Done. Pulling the mic out. Yeah, fuck it.